and welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we're analyzing aliens in short, controlled bursts. I'm John Ingle. And I'm Mitch Bryan, and today we're looking at Minute 87, which begins with Bishop continuing down the conduit and ends with Hicks telling Ripley that they should make sure it doesn't come to that. That's my Michael Bean. How's that? <laughs> hey, let's just make sure it doesn't come to that, all right? Well, let me show you some stuff. Uh, yeah, we have Todd Norris back with us again today. Thanks for coming back, Todd. Yeah, I'm glad to be back. Great. All right, so uh, yeah, we have uh, Bishop is back in the. He's in the conduit. We're following him. We're or tracking back, tracking, but we also get him, a, and, and then we get a point of view shot. So yes. we actually are get a true subjective from inside the uh, head of Bishop shot. No mm-hmm. heads up display or anything, anything like that. <laughs> but we're perceiving the the pipe from his point of view, which we have now moved much closer to him psychologically. I, I think I made my case for how when we see the back of Ripley's head earlier on and she turns and they moves to a shot reverse shot that we were actually experiencing his point of view there. So the filmmakers are actually moving us into his consciousness. Yeah. Um, so I, I mentioned earlier, this is just terrifying to me. Um, being inside of this thing, actually having the subjective view, point of view. Oh, I, there's, all, there's so many times I can, when I was a kid, seeing pictures of spelunkers and caves and things and it just gives me the chills. Um, but... I suppose you probably want to talk about, I don't know how much you know about the setup here, what, what the camera set up inside of there, how they were able to accomplish these shots. Uh, the, the only thing that I know is what I just got off the commentary, which I watched earlier. And it's um, and it was only through, I think, um, Bill Paxton and Lance Henriksen talking to each other that Paxton asked him, he's like, was that just a camera on wheels or something with a rope? And, and Lance Henriksen said, yeah, yeah, it was just pulled by a rope. And he said it was the the smallest wheels you've ever seen in your life. Yeah. So I imagine it was just some little airy 35 millimeter camera, one of the small mags that could fit in there mm-hmm. on, on some sort of little skate wheel thing that they pulled back with them. It's very simple. Do you um, want to say anything about the cinematography in general? Like the, the, I don't think much has been talked about the fact that Dick Bush was the first cinematographer who was let go and replaced by uh, Adrian Biddle, right? Yeah. So, um, Exactly. So, I, you know, I'm sure you've talked about this on other minutes about the culture clash between the uh, American and I suppose ex- technically James Cameron is Canadian, but basically the, the Yanks and the British who just worked on a different schedule. And um, I think Dick Bush was part of the casualty uh, of that culture clash in that I don't think James Cameron and him saw eye to eye in some ways on how to light things. Partic- I think the the straw that broke the camel's back was the um, alien uh, lair in the atmospheric processor unit where all the colonists were, that Dick Bush wanted to light it much more high-key and bright, and James Cameron wanted to hide things and make it much more Cameron blue. Mm-hmm. You know, And I think that was one of the things where they finally decided to, to part ways. Um, I will say I did a little bit of research on on Dick Bush, and believe it or not, he was the first cinematographer of William Friedkin's Sorcerer. Mm. And so I started reading about the movie Sorcerer, which, by the way, I love that. I love it too. Yeah, I love that movie. I believe we all saw that movie together at the Alamo. That was the first time. The last time the new yeah the new version. And it was the first time I had ever seen it. It was a great way to see that movie for the first time. Superb. I saw the movie at the Embassy Twin on the Plaza as a kid. So I saw it at the Cinema Twin in Hutchinson. Oh wow! Wait, you guys actually saw Sorcerer when it came out? We were the ones that. Yeah, barely anybody did. So, (laughs) Um, and so he 
Friedkin fired him too. They, they he shot all the stuff from what I understand. Dick Bush shot all the stuff in Sorcerer that was the prologue, you know, the introduction yeah. of all the characters. And then they he did a week in South America or wherever they shot it. And the footage in the jungle was underexposed. And Friedkin said, hey, we're going to have to reshoot this stuff. And Dick Bush said, I don't have the tools to to do this. I need more equipment. And, you know, it's too contrasty. And, and uh, so they just parted ways. And he got the other guy. And I, I feel bad I don't remember the guy's name. But... Um, but the guy just used a lot of reflectors and uh, apparently did a fine job. So poor Dick Bush had a, somewhat of a history of working with American directors and just uh, not jiving with them. <laughs> so he was replaced on Aliens after, I think, just a few weeks with Adrian Biddle, who was the focus puller on the first Alien and who went on to do a lot of great work. Yeah. Do you think the fact that he had been on Alien what worked to his advantage at all? I mean, the movies don't really look that much alike. I imagine it must have. I mean, um, I would think working every single day on the Ridley Scott film that was the the predecessor of this film would just, you know, could could do nothing but but help. And then also, I think Adrian Biddle also worked on, continued to work on commercials and maybe was even the director of photography on some Ridley Scott commercials he might have even oh, shot the, the, the did he do the 1984 one i think yeah the, the famous one the apple one apple. yeah i think he did and we talked about this way back um yeah he he directed or he dp'd a ton of commercials before alien and then it seems as though he wasn't really that interested in, in pursuing a feature film career for a while because after alien he just seemed to go back right back to doing the commercials because this is his, his next major film credit so he was really kind of just went back to his old job. And I suppose that the, um, I guess the Hill-Geiler connection here might have helped a little bit since you still have this, you still have some production people involved. That, that's really the only connection, right? You said 20th Century Fox, right. well, Walter I, Hill and David Geiler, I, and that's about it. I think what, if, if my memory serves me correctly, when they had made the decision to fire Dick Bush, it was Ridley Scott who suggested Adrian Biddle as yeah. a replacement. Okay. Um, I could be getting that wrong, but I think that's the case. And, and then Biddle shot Thel- Thelma and Louise, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, then he went on, after Aliens, he went on to do yeah, lots of work. He's done some great stuff. Yeah. I, did he, I think <laughs> Our, he did Princess Bride, didn't he? Which is a totally different looking movie, but a great looking movie in and of itself. I think he shot that. I think he did, uh, I think he did City Slickers 2 as well, or some <laughs> one of those comedies. The Legend of Curly's Gold? He did Willow. Did he really? Yeah. Did he? Wow. I wonder when somebody's going to do the Willow Minute. <laughs> uh, somebody probably will. It's some well. You got the Han Solo movie coming up, so Ron Howard's a hot topic. I can't believe. So I reached over to grab this uh, Blu-ray of Sorcerer to see who was listed as cinematographer, and I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't Owen Roisman um, who shot the no, Exorcist. No, it, it's it John, it was John M. Stevens or somebody. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Well, it's just so funny because this 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 dandy little booklet that that uh, Sorcerer comes out and has no credits of anybody else in it except for <laughs> William Friedkin <laughs> on the back. And there's a plug for the Friedkin connection, his book, oh, yeah, his book actually is... on the DVD case. <laughs> I know. It's a, it's a old, old Billy Friedkin that character. The ego has landed. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, anyway, uh, so in, in terms of, um, in terms of the cinematography though, Anything else that you sort of want to... You know, it's weird, because I know that one of the reasons I'm brought on here is because that's what I do, you know, so I'm supposed to offer up my opinion on the lighting. And and what's interesting is that 
I've never found the lighting of Aliens to be particularly amazing. I, it's not that I dislike it. Yeah. Um, but in the shadow of a Ridley Scott movie where the visual elegance just seeps out of every pore of that movie, Aliens has something else on its mind. It's not about elegance. So in a way, like, you know, the grain that we were talking about in the last episode, the, you know, the graininess of the film is part of it. Its grittiness and rawness is part of its appeal, the, yeah. one of the reasons it works. And I don't find it a particularly beautiful film, and, and I don't think it's supposed to be. Um, it it's it was contemporary for the time in, in the sense of using lots of source light, just like the original Alien did. You know, lots of, um, you know, the screens that they're looking at on the maps are creating this low angle soft light below them, which I'm sure were on close up shots being augmented by actual lights. But so it has a very naturalistic, modern aesthetic, at least for the 80s mm-hmm. at, at the time. Whereas I would assume Dick Bush was might have been one of those old guard people that you know lit from up high on the grid with a lot of hard light. It was probably just a look that Cameron was not a fan of. Right. But it just it's just unfortunate that it has to be the sequel to Alien because Alien is just one of the most beautiful films ever shot. And, and just has a texture and a look to it. And, you know, the, 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 the smoke in the air and everything is so amazing. And everything in Aliens, to me, seems like sort of a knockoff. I, I remember listening to the first week of this show that you guys were on at, when the uh, narcissist gets pulled up into the ship. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think I could tell even when I was in high school that, like, wow, this is supposed to be the same uh, interior of the narcissist. But, boy... It sure looks a, a lot less cool than when it was lit by Ridley Scott in the yeah. in the original. And so, um, you know, production design wise, there's a lot of similarities to the film as far as corridors and stuff like that. But they're just lit in just a slightly different way that yeah. is just not quite as sexy. And maybe part of that too is that it's in one eight five, and it's not in scope, so the lenses are different, the shape of the screen is different, and um, so it just doesn't quite have that Hollywood sexiness. But um, so I don't dislike the look of the film yeah. at all. But there's not much of the movie that where I really go, oh, I want to rip that idea off. It's all like, yeah, it's fine. There's a very commanding shot of um, Hicks uh, in this in this scene um, that comes up where we've also got Hudson and, and Vasquez in this two shot, and this is when he utters the line, "Stay frosty." Stay frosty. And I want to know whether that's the first time you've ever heard that in a movie because I don't remember ever hearing it in a movie before that. Well, it's the, it's the first time I ever heard it ever period. Um, and I always, always, it was kind of a great line in a cheesy way. Like it's certainly something you'll say to your friends without meaning to be cool by any means. Like, Hey guys, stay frosty out there. And everybody laughs. I know it was a catchphrase for me and my friends after we saw the movie for a long time after that. I mean, it may be cheesy, but yeah, stay frosty. That's just mm. cool. <laughs> but I can tell you that this is not the first time this has been uttered in a movie. Oh. Um, and I'm not the one that dug this up, so it, it, I, I don't know who to give credit to. But someone found, uh, a probably spur- like asking the same question you just did, Mitch. Said, I want to find out where this comes from. And uh, there's another movie, 1972's The New Centurions, with George C. Scott yeah. and yeah. Stacy Keach. And there's a scene where they're talk, talking, it's just a talking you know, dialogue scene in the cop car. It's kind of a predecessor to Training Day in a way, right, this movie? Like where you got a rookie being taught by a salty veteran uh, yeah, on a, little, a day, a bit, Training yeah. Day yeah. kind of thing. It's a Joseph Wamba yeah. book that it was based on. Yeah, and um, you know, Stacey Keach's character, I watched the scene, and he's kind of 
going on and on about, you know, stuff, just kind of complaining, I guess. And George C. Scott goes, ah, stay frosty, kid. Stay frosty. <laughs> I was all like, right. it's like, not only was it, has it been said in a movie before, but it was said by George C. Scott, of all people. So uh, that's the origin of, of, of Stay Frosty as far as we know. Cut to a young James Cameron in a movie theater watching the new, new Centurions <laughs> with a little light bulb going over his head. Exactly. <laughs> there's also a moment in this, in this minute where there's a... Ripley, there's a real sense of fear and vulnerability that then gets turned into something else through this bonding moment that yeah. she has with, with Hicks. And I think it's just another one of those, This this again, we're back to this whole 10 minutes being kind of about setting things up, moving things forward, um, but and complicating agendas, but really doing it all through, essentially through dialogue and just sort of physical interaction between people. There's no, especially if you take out the sentry guns, there is no real action for this full 10 minutes really mm-hmm. um and and i just think this is a really nice moment between the two of them that's going to proceed to something even even better yeah it's um you know i think that we're getting a little ripley one thing we didn't mention in the last minute i'll say is that we did get a time frame given to us by bishop before he entered the 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 conduit like he basically gives her, you know, it's going to take this long to get down the conduit. It's going to take this long to link in and on and on. And I think it comes to roughly three hours. And they just said that they have about four hours until the thing blows up. Right. So she is the one, her and Vasquez, I guess, are the ones that are privy to this timeline. And I think we're getting a little, I think that's what's cracking Ripley here. Just a little bit, a little crack in the facade where we get this little uh, shaky cup moment with her uh taking a drink you can see she's a little bit terrified she's usually pretty cool she's pretty calm collected but that timeline's pretty disconcerting i think i would be a little bit concerned about this one hour buffer to total annihilation as well so i think we're getting a little cause and effect there she's just gotten that information and you know i think i guess yeah that would that wouldn't be there it wouldn't be as one to you know one to one beat to beat if the sentry guns are in there right so again there's another big interruption i think with those but um but then hicks comes in i think again we've had an entire movie where hicks is keeping an eye on ripley right from the time they woke up on the Salako, um we to now he's constantly checking in on her and i think he's not it's not like they're engaged or anything it's not like they're engaged or anything but um he does keep an eye on her and he notices things and i mean he'll literally say that here in a couple of minutes but um of course he's going to be the one key, keyed in on her fear yeah and he's going to come over and say all right you know let's um let's work through this let's talk about what we got to do and i think he wants to you know dissuade her fears by uh arming her you know so but this conversation is interesting like one of the notes i have is that uh is nothing raises the stakes like a suicide pact you know when things are so dire as to agree to kill each other <laughs> um and and instead of letting it get as bad as it could get, then you're telling the audience, yeah, this is, there's a reason for these guys to be scared. We got our two best people here. Yeah. And they're talking about, yeah, we're not going to let it get that far. But then of course he says, let's just not let it get that far. And he's very comforting. (laughs) He says that I think it's a nice performance moment for Michael Bean. It's a bit of the old Western cliche of like, save one, save one bullet for yourself. If they, if they come to get you, right. Well, he's saving two for each of them. Yeah. 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 But I do think it's a good it's a good Hicks moment. Like we've had our bishop minutes the last couple where we're building his character mm-hmm. up a little bit more. Now we have uh Hicks taking charge. 
being a real leader, telling everyone in his way to stay calm. Like we got make sure not one of these bastards gets in here. That's important. Everybody just chill, do your job. And now he's going to go over to Ripley and educate her a little bit. And I think it's now we're in Hicks minutes where we're building his character a little bit more. Uh, I, I want to make a reference to some earlier minutes of this podcast and that, so I'm, you know, I, I listen to the alien minute podcast in my car to and from work. And in the minutes that talked about, uh, basically the first time that Hicks sees Ripley, you know, when they're on the deck there and Gorman gives his speech to them and all that stuff. And there was, since that happens over a couple of minutes, there was whole episodes devoted to talking about what was in Hicks's mind. Why is he the only one that's reacting to Ripley, you know, seemingly without rolling his eyes. And, and there was, (laughs) and I was driving my car kind of frustrated and kind of laughing too, because my, my theory never got brought up, which, which maybe shows you who I am. It was just like, I think Hicks was attracted to Ripley, <laughs> you know, like to me when I was a kid, that's just seemed like from scene one, that was sort of like, oh, you know, there, there are, you know, he's got eyes on her. He, he, not only, you know, not just in a, in a lurid way, but you know, here's somebody that seems to be a, a capable person who might be his equal. And I think he's attracted. And right. I think every scene, every moment where you guys were rationalizing, why is he behaving this way? I'm like, dude, he likes her. Right, well, right. We, we were waiting until the episodes that will okay. air this week that you haven't heard yet, but, um, no, where but, the, the engagement scene, that's right. where the culmination of all right. that that ends up. So we definitely end up talking about that extensively. But um, it, And it's, again, you know, it's the humanity of this this segment of the movie where you're really allowing these people to see each other as... You know, as people who are in jeopardy, who are sharing the same danger and the same space and the same threat. And it's just it's it's one of those things that makes the movie really special, I think. Yeah. And I think it's it's moments like these that are that lesser movies don't think are necessary or they're they're not competent enough to do where they think we just need to have it be bigger and louder and more scary without realizing that without moments like these that are the quieter moments and the more human moments that those other those other bigger, scarier moments don't work because we don't connect to the people and we haven't had a, a dramatic contrast to let us kind of sit and breathe, you know, catch our breath for just a moment. Um, th- th- that's what I think, you know, as much as you can criticize James Cameron for his his dialogue capabilities, his innate storytelling ability and his knowledge to create moments like this is impeccable. And the moment just gets better in the next minute. I mean, this is this he hasn't started teaching her how to use the gun yet, right? That's the, right. Next, that's the next minute. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, and what I'm, I think that what I want to do too before we get to that, when we get to the next minute, is I want to talk a little bit about the structural disorientation that the, is created by the experience of watching this movie. Um, so that's my tease for tomorrow. And if that makes no sense to you, <laughs> you're going to have to just come listen and see what I'm talking about. <laughs> All right. Well, Todd, do you want to give your uh, location on the internet again? Yeah, you can check out the uh, films that I have uh, done and worked on on toddnorris.net and also uh, the projects that Mitch, Brian, and I have worked on together at jetpackpicks.com. You can find us at alienminute.com, on Twitter at alienminutepod, on Instagram at alienminutepodcast. You can also come over to iTunes, give us a five-star review if you haven't done that yet. We'd appreciate that a great deal. Also, come over to our public page, buy one of our t-shirts, one of our many alien or aliens designs. All right, well, that's going to do it for Minute 87. We'll see you tomorrow for Minute 88.